please remain standing for, as you are able for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is Psalm 127. The text will be on the screen as I read. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, good morning, church. My name is Brian. I'm a pastor here, one of the pastors here at Trinity City Church. Hi, what's up, bud? What's up, Emmanuel? Emmanuel and his friends are off to uh, Children's Church right now. Reminder to parents to pick up your kids right before or right after you take communion. Parents are also uh, able to pick up these little reminders of what they are learning in uh, church through the curriculum. And it's a great way to start to integrate some of the conversations that they're having here at church uh, through Sunday school at home. Uh, right now, they are focusing on Jesus's uh, miracles that prove that he is God. They're looking at uh, the story in John chapter 14 and uh, all kinds of things that will come from that that might uh, be a great thing to talk about at home for parents. If you're visiting today, uh, we are, uh, have started uh, several weeks ago now a sermon series called Blessed, Delighting in the Good Life, where we look at this uh, theological idea and theme uh, that uh, what does it mean for somebody to be blessed? Blessed is the one who, and then fill in the blank. And to be blessed means that if you're a blessed person, it means you're a happy person, a person that's full of joy because you're experiencing life the way that God has intended uh, you to experience it. But one of the realities of the world we live in is often we don't have a joyous life, we don't have a happy life, we have an exhausted and anxious life. And so one of the things that this sermon series has been seeking to do is to show and to lean into those experiences that we have in various parts of life that leave us exhausted and comparing that to the, the calling that God has in our life. After setting up the sermon with a couple, um, couple sermon series with a couple of sermons uh, about how our calling as exiles is to long for home and to find our belonging with God, we've been looking at specific types of topics uh, related to this theme. Uh, we looked at the topic of friendship. We looked at the topic of uh, sex and romance. Today we're going to look at what it means to have a faithful household, so it's going to really lean into the topic of parenting. Uh, and next week, we're going to look at technology. Then we have work and rest, generosity, the doing of justice and mercy. And even the last sermon, we'll be leaning into uh, the idea of how can you have a blessed life if there's suffering, if you're mourning, if you're going through the valley. That will be the last uh, sermon that we will look at. But today, it's blessed are those with a faithful household, building a healthful household of faith when the next generation is deconstructing. So let's go ahead and pray before we dive into this sermon. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gathering, and thank you for all the volunteers each week who uh, help to set up uh, this place of hospitality so that we can lean in and to worship and to focus on you, your gospel, your grace, your calling, your purposes for your glory. Lord, I pray that we see that now. I pray that we hear that now, Lord especially as we think about the, 
the task of passing on the faith to the next generation that saints have done, been doing for the, throughout the centuries, before us and before them and before them. Lord, this is the reality of the faith. The faith continues to exist because we pass them on to our kids and to the next generation. And Lord, help us to see, Lord, not only how to do that, but why it seems to be so exhausting sometimes to lean into this vocation. And Lord, help us to see hope that you are not abandoning us to do this all by ourselves, but your grace and your power is ever present. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can't really give a sermon on parenting without finally sharing a story about how I got kicked out of a varsity girls basketball game. So let's start there, okay? Uh, because I, I want to make it clear that this is not some like uh, grandiose professor up here that doesn't have his own struggles with parenting. So let's go ahead and talk about this uh, incident that happened a couple years ago. It was the senior night for girls varsity basketball at Nova Classical Academy. And I love watching basketball, any type of basketball. I can watch uh, the Timberwolves, the Lynx, of uh, high school basketball, college basketball, whatever. Just give me a basketball game, I'll watch it. I'm always excited for uh, this uh, basketball season, especially the fact that my kids play basketball, my girls play basketball, it's a lot of fun. And this particular game was a bit of a rough game. The refs were letting the girls play, as you could say. They uh, were allowing fouls to happen and a little bit more rough play. And this escalated in the first half uh, to, at the time, the best senior player uh, got hacked once and got a bloody nose. So she needed to exit the game. And all the parents around me, they're getting fired up, of course. This is not good. This is the best player going out. And as a result of that, uh, it was a close game. And then the opponents were starting to pull away as a result of this. I remember uh, telling my wife at the time when this happened, like, it's not that big a deal. Refs, when this typically happens, like good refs will start to de-escalate the game by calling like petty fouls. So if the game's starting to get out of hand, getting rough like it clearly was with the bloody nose, that's how they're going to start pushing back on this game to kind of get it under control. Well, they didn't. The refs didn't do that, and it was still a fairly rough game, and it was more of that in the second half. Kids are getting hacked. One of our players got knocked over during a layup. And then the mother of the gal who got the bloody nose, she was sitting in the stands by my family. She's really getting fired up, and she knows I'm a pastor. So she says, Pastor Brian, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this game without getting kicked out. She was getting very fired up. I mean, this was her baby out there getting bloodied up on the game. And so now I'm getting fired up because Mama Bear's getting fired up and the parents are getting fired up. Now I'm, I'm in. Like, I don't trust these refs anymore. They clearly don't know what they're doing. So I'm participating in this as well. And so with the other parents, any type of foul we see on our team, not the other team, we don't care about them at this point, on our team, we're calling out those fouls and letting them know about it. If there's a hack or a small push, we are, we are just raising our voice and letting them know what is going on. And then there was this particular play that happened right in front of the home team stands where there was another hack, a little bit of a push, and everybody stands up and yells at the refs, that's a foul, look at the foul. They did call the foul there, but then a particularly uh, sensitive ref, he's known for being a bit of a, a sensitive ref uh, uh, at different games, he's the one that turns to all of us parents and says to us, the next person who says anything is out of this game. Everybody goes quiet. And then I look around, 
and I calculate. And I say, you know what? I'm going to take one for the team. <laughs> so I pipe up and said, we just don't want another bloody nose. And he says, you're out of here. And that's it. That's how I got kicked out of the game. I, I didn't curse at him, didn't say anything about his mother. That was it. It was actually pretty tame. And I'm like walking out of the game and everybody's like, uh, going crazy in our team and like jeering me at the other team, like boo, you know, getting and all that type of stuff. And I remember the assistant coach asked, whose dad is that? And my oldest daughter had to say, that's my dad. <laughs> of course, now as a parent, I'm wondering if I really messed up my kids and did I mess up as a parent? Like, man, this is going to be embarrassing. It's going to be the talk in a negative way of all the peers and parents. Like, what what is going to happen? But as time went on, oh, another little detail actually on this too that my wife let me know about later is that two people down from us was the executive director of the school that saw all this go down too of my kind of performance here and getting kicked out. Uh, and he was really chill during this game, by the way. He was very, very well behaved, unlike the rest of us. But anyway, I'm just thinking like, man, I'm, I'm going to have to like go to a different school or something like that. I really have really messed up probably my parents' reputation. The good name of my household has been tarnished. But then over time, I heard that like my kids' peers are just saying, your dad is so funny. I can't believe he did that. That's so cool. And all the parents are talking about it, like, way to stick up for the kids. Like, somebody needed to do it. After you got kicked out, I wanted to get kicked out too. Uh, so I was like inspiring all these people and I was like just this like uh, amazing like popular dad. So I was like going from man I need to transfer to a different school to like maybe I should run for school board. Man I think I would win at this point, right? This is a great example of parenting, right? This is like the joys, the lows, like am I doing it right? The stressing out, getting caught up in it. I add an extracurricular activity because your schedule's so full. This is a great snapshot of what parenting looks like. And this is a church that has a lot of parenting going on. If anybody has ever stayed more than 15 minutes after the service, there's this small eruption of kids that are running around uh, this church. And it's a blessing for us as a church to be able to be in a position to be able to, to help these parents pass on their faith to the next generation. But that's an idealistic way of talking about parenting, of course. So usually how we experience parenting isn't this blessed experience, but this experience of being exhausted and worried and anxious. And this sermon is really going to look at that part of the experience, this kind of experience of feeling like you're pouring your life into parenting and you just want to pass out. And how do we go from that experience to really being able to focus in an intentional way from not passing out from parenting, but passing on the faith to the next generation. Now there's a book, uh, especially in the second half of the sermon, that really, really influences uh, some of the things I'm going to say in this sermon. It's a book by Christian Smith and A.B. Uh, Adamsick. Uh, that they're both sociologists and they wrote a book called Handing Down the Faith, How Parents Pass Their Religion On to the Next Generation. I've mentioned this uh, book in passing in some other sermons that it's been more of a sub-point of a sermon and really excited to be able to unpack some of the things that they have, have said in that book. Uh, and that's especially going to be uh, relevant for the second half of the sermon. But this first half, let's just talk about how parenting doesn't always feel like the blessed life and maybe why that is. Why does it feel like this is a vocation that you're just utterly exhausted and you're about ready to pass out? What is uh, the reasoning behind that? What are the factors behind that? Well, one thing we see in society 
is that there is a huge market for learning how to parent. There is no shortage of different philosophies or self-help books when it comes to parenting because we will buy these things because we want to know how to be good parents. For example, you could read some baby books and how you have a newborn and there's different approaches on how do you manage their schedule of sleeping and eating and so on. There's an approach that's really strict that you decide when the naps and the sleeping routine and the feeding occurs, not your baby. But then if you're at an actual bookstore, probably on the same shelf, right next to that book might be another book that has the complete opposite philosophy and approach that says, no, the way that you manage those things with your kids is you let them manage that. So if they're crying because they're hungry, you feed them right away. If they're ready to take a nap and they fall asleep, don't wake them up, just let them sleep. And so then you have this confusion as a parent, right? Which philosophy is the right one? And if it's not these two, there would be another amount of endless decisions or things that you can read that would tell you the way to raise your kids the right way. Uh, David Zoll is one of the books that I've been reading throughout this uh, sermon series, and he has a, a chapter on parenting in one of his books where he shares uh, an incident of reading a book about parenting that really said you need to read uh, with your kids one hour a day if they're going to be successful academically. You have to read one hour a day with your kids if you want any success of them uh, in, in the academic realm. So he just goes for it, right? He uh, uh, goes from maybe having a little bit of reading a short uh, bedtime book before bed to go, now every occasion is, a, is an opportunity to read more uh, books and to read to his kids and read with his kids. If, they, if his kids wanted to play a game, no, we don't play games right now. We're going to read books because we need you to be successful. If his child used the wrong word in a sentence, all right, time out. We clearly need to read more. You don't know how to talk, right? And you keep, keep having this like new framework to be able to set up your kids for uh, success. And then he was trying a bunch of different things. They didn't work. So then he announced a new policy. One hour before bed, every day we're going to be reading. We're going to do an hour of reading before bed every single day, which led to a very stressed out family. He says in his book, quote, needless to say, the whole situation proved so exhausting that I fell asleep 10 minutes in, only to be awoken a couple hours later by my oldest son, who was having a nightmare about me being mad at him. <laughs> That's the situation that sometimes these how-to books present. They, may, they create more anxiety and stress, even though they're promoting them in such a way that this is your winning ticket to parenting. All these different ways of parenting are so overwhelming that it's hurting more than helping. It's not more ways to grow as a parent, but more ways to feel like we are falling short of parenting. And it's not only the books that have an influence on parenting in our culture, there's also this sport of comparing your kids and your parenting to other kids and to other parents. Your parenting might be fine according to your assessment if you've ditched the books. It's fine as long as my parenting and my kids are at least better than the neighbors. If at least my kids are getting better grades than that kid, then I'm on the right track. If I made the right school choice over the Johnson family, then I know that I am being a better parent. Or maybe it's not the sport of comparing, but it's the sport of people-pleasing. 
It's, it's more that you're concerned uh, about how other people perceive your kids or other people perceive your parenting. What do other parents think about the way that I parent and the choices that I make or the behavior of my kids that starts to drive parenting? Are my decisions viewed by others as the right ones and by other parents as the right ones? Will they, will they be satisfied with the choices that I make and laugh at all my dad jokes? So you're just worried about how other people are viewing you as the things that are driving your parenting. Here's another final example, and this is this uh, finding your identity and self-fulfillment in the vocation of parenting. This is what parents often do. They find their self-worth in the activity of parenting. So they work crazy hours to create upward mobility for the family to be able to afford all the things and to be secure. We get them into the best possible school. We sign them up for all the sports, all the clubs, all the, the musical instruments so they can learn all these things. And the whole time we're just chasing this cultural idol of potential. We want them and us to reach our potential. Maybe it's the potential you feel like you didn't reach as a kid, so you're trying to impute that onto your kids so that they can reach the heights that you were never able to reach. You could have gotten into better school or had a better career or got a sports scholarship if you didn't blow out your knee, so since that didn't happen to you and you didn't reach your potential, now you want to reach that potential through your kids and you want to accomplish these goals through them since you didn't reach them yourself. Or you can just think about the general ideal of potential for your kids. Because you can always reach a higher potential in this pursuit. You could always put your kids in a better position to reach their potential, or you could, uh, uh, you could be doing more to help them doing that, to, to achieve those goals as a parent. One of the greatest sins, it seems, in parenting nowadays is, is if your kids don't get the grades that they're capable of or play in the sports of their greatest ability or get into the, the best school or have the best career that reflects their foolish, fullest undefined potential. And if you fall short of that, then you've committed a grave sin as a parent. And that's the potential uh, that's, that's, uh, that's um, applied to kids. Then there's the potential of parenting itself. You could be working more hours or making more money or striving for a better promotion in your career or spending more time doing homework or signing your kids up for more activities. After all, they need to do all these things to reach their potential. You need to make sure you're managing the right peer relationships so that they have the right connections and influences or live in the right neighborhood to set your kids up for their potential. There's always something more you could be doing as a parent to reach your potential so that your kids can reach their potentials because that is the great sin, is if they are not able to do it. Well, let me ask you a question. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that you get all these things, right? You actually attain all these goals. Your parenting looks great to the outside viewer. Your kids are set up with an affluent and safe and secure life. They reach their potential, and your identity, your, your sense of self-worth is just totally satisfied. You get all of those things, but your kids don't have faith in the risen Christ. Is that successful? Would you be satisfied with that outcome of life? Now, we're in a church, and I'm going to assume that the answer or that situation maybe doesn't sit quite well with you. Seems those are good things to have, but what if your kids are not Christian? 
What if they don't embrace the faith? There's something about that that seems like, wow, that's a pretty significant priority that I should be focusing on. Because I think there's so much in our world, of, especially with parenting, that just puts a lot of stress, a lot of distractions, a lot of focus on so many different things, and you're juggling all these balls, and it's just so overwhelming that sometimes we can even forget about the essentials. It reminds me of a friend, and, a friend of mine once said uh, about how he tries to boil down parenting, that the goal is actually very simple. You're trying to raise a Christian adult. That's it. A Christian adult. You're not trying to raise a professional athlete, a successful millionaire, or an Ivy League student. A Christian adult. That's it. And for the next half of this sermon, I really want us to focus on the Christian part. Because in a world that seems like so many children in the next generation is deconstructing, how can we as parents and a church that's responsible for the faith to the next generation, how do we pass this faith on to the next generation? And here's a passage from Scripture that gives us a framework for how to start thinking about this. How do we go from passing out as parents to focusing on passing on the faith? Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 through 9 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Verse 7, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. It's a very popular verse. This is the verse of the greatest commandment. Love God with all your thoughts, your emotions, and actions. Your entire life, tattoo the love of God and the love of others on your soul, is what this passage is saying. And then in verse 7, as you saw, it says, impress them on your children. And how do you do that? The verse goes on, throughout the day, and in all your life, you impress this on your children. When you're sitting in the dining room for a meal, when you're walking your dog, when you're driving to a school event, before bed, and when you wake up, this is the thing you are impressing on your children to love God and to love others. It's not describing plan time, even though that's assumed in the rituals and habits of the Old Testament. This is the in-between scheduled church religious time when faith is bubbling up quite naturally. In this description, faith is a central and natural part of the life of a household. It's more than the scripture graphic from Hobby Lobby that's hanging on your wall. This is the Bible on a nightstand of a parent's room, the prayer that is said through the valley and through tears. This is the joy of laughter at a church event, uh, the faith that is shared with a neighbor who is longing to talk about spiritual things with someone, and then the next generation is part of that experience, and they are a witness of it. One of the interesting things, I think, even in church circles is that we often think about things uh, that have a high impact on our kids' faith when, in when actually they don't have a very high impact on our kids' faith. If I were to ask probably the average Christian parent, what is the most important thing that impresses the faith on your child, there would probably be a bunch of different answers that would be given by a parent. 
It might be church programs, that you need uh, great kids and youth ministry, you need midweek programs, you need a good Sunday school, or Christian events, we need summer camp or youth conferences and mission trips. Or maybe it's the school choice, you need to make sure that you're, you're putting your kids in a school where maybe they, the faith is enforced by peers or the culture of the, the school rather than other things. Or maybe it's Christian professionals that have the biggest impact on your kids' faith, the youth ministers and the pastors. Maybe you think it's your friend, the, the friends of your kids or the peers or the siblings, or maybe it's the media consumption. Well, if you read the book that I referenced before uh, by those sociologists where they are researching the biggest factors in passing on the faith, what they would say is none of those things have a significant factor as to whether or not kids keep the faith when they leave the home. They're good things, they're important things, but they are not the most significant significant rather, uh, causal influence on whether or not kids keep the faith. The number one factor on whether or not kids keep the faith, if you're just looking at it from the lens of a sociologist, is the parents. It's the influence of the parents on their children. These other things matter, but not as much as the faith of the parents. These other things that I mentioned are just supplemental to what's going on in that relationship. And these sociologists are looking at the last four to five decades of research that reinforce this reality. The parents are the most significant factor in whether or not a kid keeps their faith. It's interesting, too, because I think if you look at a lot of Christian literature, most of the focus, if you read Christian books, is not so much about how do you pass down the faith to your kids, but more about how do you have obedient children. That's, what, that's what's really being consumed. How do I have well-behaved children that reach their potential seems to be even the focus of Christian publishing. But if, again, if you have well-behaved children with no faith, then is that the blessed life? And for any Christian parent, they would say no. We want them to have faith. Now, I want to share from this book what they would say this looks like in the home and all of life. How does this look if, it's, if someone is passing on, a parent is passing on a faith, their faith in a healthy way? One disclaimer before I get into these kind of four areas of emphasis it comes from Proverbs 22.6, which says, Start children off, or the ESV says, Train up a child on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. It's always significant to know that this is a proverb, not a promise. This is an area of wisdom in Scripture, not a guarantee that if you do all these things, then your kids will keep the faith. It's good to know what uh, something like you know, sociologists would say is the way to pass on your faith, because especially once I start unpacking this, it honestly just looks a lot like Deuteronomy 6 that I just read. But it's good to know that this is wisdom. This is the wise way to live your life. It's not a promise, a guarantee that this is what's going to happen, even if you do all the things right. So with that disclaimer in mind, what does the book go on to describe as the way that parents pass on the faith? Number one, parents focused on balanced parenting. The type of parenting you embrace needs to cultivate a warm environment with boundaries. And not every parenting approach or maybe uh, framework from a book would promote this way of parenting. 
There's strict parenting, which would be boundaries without warmth, and having legalistic parenting has a negative impact on a kid's faith. Or there's permissive parenting, which is this is your parents as the best friend, where there's a lot of warmth, but there's no boundaries, there's no warnings, there's no structure, there's no right and wrong in the parenting. And that has a negative impact on a kid's faith. And then there's passive parenting, which has neither warmth nor boundaries. The parent is just uninvolved and not interested. Or then there's what I call extra parenting, extra as that Gen Z slang term, like if somebody's being a little extra, a little over the top. Extra parenting is the wrap your kids in bubble wrap approach to parenting, where you're always present, always programming things to your kids. There's no free play. There's no uh, kids figuring out conflict resolution with their peers because you're there being the referee, hovering over your parents all the time. All these styles of parenting have an impact on faith because kids associate one's style of parenting with the Christian faith. And so this book promotes balanced parenting, the type of parenting where you're asserting your authority by setting clear expectations, boundaries, and practices, especially related to your faith, yet you do so by exhibiting love, warmth, humility, care, and support. That's how you tune the guitar string of parenting, is by having both boundaries and warmth. Let me unpack some of the other things from the book to see uh, what that would actually look like. So the second thing they say as a big thing for parents to focus on if they want to pass on their faith to the next generation is you have to focus on the health of your own faith before you can even look at the faith and consider the faith of your kids. How healthy is your faith? Because the health of your faith is precisely the thing that you're going to pass on and the thing that they are viewing as like the, the flesh and blood application of the Christian faith in their life. See, kids will learn more about the love of God by watching and experiencing the faith of the parents than, than what they learn from Sunday school curriculum. What you say and show as the good life of faith at home will shape the, your kid's view of the good life of faith more than anything. Because here's the reality, and this is why. Kids, they ha all have the spiritual gift of sniffing out fake faith. They know, whether you say it or not, whether you are into this, and this is a red-hot reality in your soul, or it's something that you're actually not that interested in, maybe even a little bit upset about. Your kids will know if you care more about politics or the success of your career or the making of money and security above faith. And they will see that whether or not you say it out loud. They can tell if going to the church gathering makes you grumpy. And they will note that. They can see if you are prioritizing school extracurriculars above the life of faith in the church. They can see that, yes, you volunteer for ministry, but it doesn't give you joy, and they will note that. If you have a church relationship, they will note it if you are actually close to them or if you tolerate or gossip about them. They will note if all the stories you tell about your life in the church is about the underbelly of the church and not the redemption stories. Now, the calling here is not to be perfect. You're not going to be a perfect parent. And sometimes church is frustrating because this is a group of sinners that are trying to figure it out 
together. But when you're not perfect and you lose your temper or if you're in the wrong, then what does the Christian faith call us to do there to exemplify? Repent, apologize, including if you've wronged your kids. The parents of a household should be the chief apologizers of that uh, home culture because we as Christians know we're not perfect and we want to show humility when we uh, are not perfect because the Christian faith is not about perfection but about redemption. So let your faith be authentic, genuine, and natural. Let the kids hear you pray and see you open your Bible at home. Let your kids see deep friendships that you have with brothers and sisters of Christ from the church. That you laugh with them when you go on vacation with those relationships or when you pray with them with tears because your friends at church are going through the valley of suffering. How do, the kids, how do your kids see you suffer? Do you bottle it all up and show no lament? Or do you get bitter when you go through suffering? Or do they see uh, your faith through tears and hope? Let your kids hear you sing in church, even if your voice is real rough. That was an interesting detail. Uh, it was a very like, specific detail in the book, but there's a high percentage of kids that kept the faith that have a memory of hearing their dad sing in church. What a profound thing for kids to hear, just their dad singing in church. Let your kids see you share your faith with folks rather than just boldly sharing your play-calling opinions with the referees at a sporting event? Do they see you go up to parents of a friend who is struggling with cancer and ask how you can pray for that parent? Let your kids, and this one might be controversial, this is for me, not the book, all right? Let your kids miss school for a church activity. This is where that's coming from. This sounds really sinful, I know. I might, I might lose people over this suggestion. You might leave the church because I just said that. Let me explain myself, all right? I'm a, of the opinion, culturally speaking, that school asks a lot from us. A lot. Not a little, a lot. There's the school day, there's the homework that you have to figure out at home, and then there's all the extracurriculars, not only in school, but the ones that you feel like you have to sign them up for, for like leagues and clubs. There isn't a lot of wiggle room for much else when you go all in on that stuff. So every once in a while, I think it's okay to pull your kids out of school and go to a church thing. Because you know what that reinforces? That some things, not all the time, but sometimes church is more important than other things in your life. Maybe sometimes with this type of description, you're worried about when I describe this kind of life of faith to the parents, well, if I do all this, would this be too much time dedicated to faith and church things that my kids might grow bitter towards me because I'm too involved in this? It depends. It really depends. How do you participate in these things? Is it with joy or with discouragement? Because that's more of what they note than anything else than anything else, even if you go to a small amount of church activities, but it makes you miserable, that would have a negative impact on doing a lot of church activities as long as you are doing it with joy. They are noting how much joy does the Christian life give my mom and dad, because if it doesn't give you any joy, if you're a kid, think about it from their perspective, that looks miserable. Why would I sign up for something that makes mom and dad so miserable? But if it's something that increases your joy, increases your hope, increases your faith, your kids will note that. 
A third thing in the book that's highlighted is that when it comes to having faith conversations with your kid, natural and routine faith conversations is where you should focus. The quality of the conversations with your kids matters more than the content that you talk about. That's very important, let me say it again. The quality of the conversation about faith with your kids is more important than the content. Of, the, of course, the content should be Christian, it should be biblical, but discussing good theology in a cold or forced conversation is never helpful for kids. The agenda for faith conversations should be set by the curiosity and questions that the kids are struggling with rather than the plans of the parents. And I always say to parents, keep your plan simple. Short readings, short times of prayer, five minutes, it's fine, or less. It doesn't have to be super long. But plan something and then just listen to where the kids want to take the conversation from there. If your kids have questions, lean into those questions. Sometimes in these situations, parents talk too much about their agenda and their theology and their faith, and they plan too much and they force too much, and the kids just get frustrated and the parents get frustrated too and give up. Routine faith conversations is what you want, even outside of the planned ones. You want natural conversations that bubble up from that. Don't only display the importance of faith in weekly services with the church or daily or semi-regular household devotionals. Look for the ways that faith conversations will naturally spring up in the details of life, especially when it's unplanned. Parents need to integrate faith, prayer, service, and scripture reader into those conversations in life when you're not expecting it to happen. And in addition, in those moments when you're having the conversations with your kids, they might express their questions and their doubts and their ideas. Sometimes it's kids. They're kind of heretical sometimes, and they're going to talk about it. But rather than going full throttle, full throttle like heretic witch hunt on them, just let it breathe. Ask them questions. Pray with them. Allow them to experience their doubts and their questions and their questionable theology. It's a good thing. So schedule your times of prayer and reading the scriptures with your kids, but don't make it so strict that it can never flex. If you're like, I'm going to have like that reading example from that author, right? I'm going to have a devotional every night, and then their kids have a sleepover, all their friends are over, and they're like, time out, we forgot the devotional. I know you guys are watching some Netflix right now, but we really need to like, you know, your friends are invited. Let's do that. No, that's too strict. Let it breathe. It's okay to schedule things and then also to pull an audible. If a football team can do it, certainly you can do it in parenting. It's okay not to do it the same way every single time. Or does faith come up only when it's scheduled. Well, that's not healthy either. What about the spontaneous times when you chat about the gospel while you're driving to school or walking the dog or saying goodnight uh, before your kids go to bed? Do you ever have a situation where your kids' friends aren't forced to participate maybe in the life of faith, but they know that your parents, uh, their parents are faithful? And so they ask you questions. That happens to me a lot. I mean, it's cheating a little bit. I know I'm a pastor, but the other day I'm picking up my kids and one of their friends came up to me in their little friend group and said, asked me, uh, Mr. Lair, are Catholics Christians? They knew I was a safe place to ask that, okay? And we had that conversation. It was like a five-minute conversation. She lost attention pretty quickly when I was starting to answer it. But do even the friendships that they have know that this is a safe place 
to answer questions about faith. Let your faith conversations be both a routine but also natural. Fourth and finally from the book, channel your kids into the right environments and relationships. So you might be thinking at this point, is there now no role for the church or for church relationships? Of course there's a role for those things. Uh, but one of the interesting angles on this that you should take is like when choosing church relationships, when choosing a church, we often as parents think more about the programs for the kids. But if you're really tracking with this book, the number one priority for parents in choosing a church environment to settle down in is does this church environment feed you? Are you growing in the faith at this church? Are you connecting with friends in the gospel? Do you get to participate in acts of service through with joy and your kids get to watch you do that? Because again, if your kids have everything but you're miserable, they're going to know more about your misery than how amazing the church program is. The number one priority for parents choosing a church is are their souls fed? Are they growing in the faith more than anything? And once you choose a church and environment like that, then you channel your kids into environments and events and relationships that reinforce the faith of the parents that's displayed at home and in all of life. Although the local church and mentors and friends may not have the same influence on passing on the faith to the next generation, they can greatly assist in helping the child own their faith apart from their parents, especially as they get older. Obviously, this also means that being a part of a community that's discouraging to parents and the kids will also pass on a discouraging faith. So it's important to focus on a church experience where your soul is being fed, and then the church is supplementing that with some other things. I think it's a powerful thing when kids go to church and they learn how to have friendship with peers in a church setting that they might not naturally connect with that person at school in a deep friendship, but because it's church and it's in the gospel, they have friends that are very diverse and sometimes unlike them. Intergenerational friendships in church is also a beautiful thing. Sometimes we really focus on peer friendship, but it's so important for your kids to be around singles and other parents and other college students that they see how diverse and beautiful the, the Christian faith is in different vocations and stages of life. And they will see that diverse expression of the Christian faith through other dads and through other moms, through Mac and St. Thomas students, through neighbors that might go here as another, uh, other living embodiments of the Christian faith. Sunday school can help, even though it's not the most important things. It can set up content for kids to consider that's supplemental and that can be brought into conversations at home. We obviously do shamana and youth conferences. It's not that those things are worthless, but they serve a very specific purpose in the life of a child. And that purpose is, is they get in a room where there's Christians from all over the state or all over the nation, and they don't feel quite as alone as they might feel at a school or in another situation, that there is people all over the world or all over the place that believe in this faith. This makes me wonder, as church leaders and as a congregation, what would it look like if we continue to build ministries at Trinity that are trying to pass on the faith to the next generation based on this data and based on Deuteronomy 6 rather than other models? What would a, a, 
a, child, a children ministry, a children's ministry, a youth ministry, and a family ministry look like if it's built on Deuteronomy 6? And I think to summarize, it would have these three characteristics, that we would continue to build ministry structure and resources that minister and disciple parents in the faith as the highest priority of church life, that we are investing in parents so that they can be healthy Christians and invest in their kids. Then we channel our kids and then channel our youth into relationships with other mentors and peers. And then thirdly, we integrate children and youth ministry into the life of the church so that it's not something completely separate, but they are serving and volunteering and participating in groups just like the adults do and maybe even eventually becoming members of this church. That's how you go from a parenting experience of passing out to passing on the faith, but it's important that passing on the faith doesn't also leave you exhausted and anxious as well. And that's why I want to conclude with going to Psalm 127, because I want to close by making something very clear. Although parents are the most important part of passing on someone's faith, we must, we must remember not to put everything on ourselves, but to keep having faith ourselves in the Lord throughout this parenting vocation. There are very wise paths to follow, but in general, and we know this as parents, nothing is guaranteed in life. You could do everything in this sermon and still have prodigal kids. But the faith you need in a situation if your kids lose the faith is the same faith that you need in God when you're raising your kids in the faith. That's what Psalm 127 says. Look at verses 1 through 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. This passage is opening and saying, everything is vanity unless God is the one behind your effort. You can work hard in building a home, but it's vanity unless God is behind your work. You can make the best plan to protect a city. You can get up early to work. You can go to, late, go to bed late because you've worked long hours. But all that labor is useless unless God's power and grace is behind your efforts. And that includes not only building a physical home, but also a faithful household. Verses 3 through 5. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Kids are a blessing. It's the good life. It's a blessing to have kids, to adopt kids, to foster kids. It's a blessing to mentor and pour your life into kids that are not your own, into the next generation of the church. Raising kids and investing in kids is part of the good life, and it requires much sacrifice. Yet I want to close this sermon by reminding you all, it's not all on you. Give yourself grace as a parent. Give yourself grace as a church in this task of passing on the faith. We need, we desperately need the Lord to pass on the faith to the next generation. The Lord Jesus, who died for our sins and raised from the dead, invited children to come to him while he ministered on this earth. And he, still alive and still involved in the life of the church, is still calling children to himself, to turn to him because he cares and calls children to faith. And if our kids are struggling in the faith or don't have faith, then we must remember not just 
maybe this situation where we have prodigal kids, but we need to remember our prodigal God, that He gives grace in abundance, and that His love is extravagant, that He has power to build faith where there is no faith, both in doubtful and anxious parents who need faith and in prodigal sons and daughters who need to come home. Blessed are those who build a faithful household upon the God who builds that house for us. Let's move to a time of communion as a church. At Trinity City Church, this is a table that we practice every week because whether you're a parent who's wrestling with a message like this or you're facing something else in life that seems way bigger than you, that you're reminded at this table about the sacrifice of Christ, about the forgiveness of sins, about the grace that he lavishes onto broken and, and doubt-filled people because of his grace and because of his love.